Psalm 143, the whole of the psalm, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for I trust in you. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, Bring my soul out of trouble, and in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, we come once again to your majestic word, and we are so thankful that you have spoken, that you have delivered to us what we need for life, for godliness, and we pray that you might help us store it up all the more as we consider this psalm together. It is a hard thing to consider this matter of repentance, and we have done so for some weeks. And we pray that we do not get bogged down by preoccupation with our sin. That we have learned, we, we do pray that we have learned and continue to learn to take our sin seriously and the need to search it out 
But as we see more sin, use that to drive us to see the Savior all the more. The bigger our viewpoint of our sin, the bigger the cross ought to appear. And so we pray that even as we consider these matters yet again, the gospel is all the more majestic, prominent, relieving, exciting in our minds and in our hearts. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. And we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, As we have studied repentance these last few weeks, I have felt burdened knowing that important issues uh, of hardship and the complexities of mutual sinfulness have not been explored yet. Um, I'm aware, to put it a different way, I'm aware that that the vision of, of a penitent people with deep and explicit repentance that, as I've put it forward, applies... I suppose foremost, in the most directly and and easily observable way, to what we might call everyday sin. The the readiness to to repent to a radical and and forthright level fits, I suppose, best, or most obviously, most, most comfortably, certainly, with the standard level of, of selfishness or mistreatment that we give to one another on a, on a daily basis. I mean, our, our, our bitterness at a family member's failure to clean up after themselves or, or to help how we think they, they ought to be helping or to speak to us with the kindness that we, we think we should have, well, in some ways, these are easily regretted and, and apologies should not be overly difficult, even if it damages our pride a little bit. That, that sort of thing isn't that hard to reckon with. At least it shouldn't be. But the Christian life does not always exist in normalities. As all will at least know someone who has been guilty or victim of more heinous sins than just selfishness or snappiness with a loved one or friend. And that raises some some difficult questions concerning repentance. If, as we saw two weeks ago, our troubles can result from from our own sin, does that does that mean? That we are simply to endure silently and passively through immense hardship under the other, other people's sin that they commit against us. Does it mean that? On the one hand, I, wanna, I want to be unflinching in calling us to repent. Because I know that most 
applications that come from the pulpit get rolled back two steps uh, as we put them into practice. And um, we, we want to be careful not to over-qualify these things. On the other hand, I think we have to address the, the complex side of repentance that comes in thinking about if and how, if and how sinners should repent when our sin is tied into a situation with other people's sin, perhaps theirs being more heinous and serious than ours. What do we do in these situations? These are the ones where this sort of teaching really starts to cash out, I think. So Psalm 40, or sorry, Psalm 143 helps us to contemplate repentance as, as we experience the, the harshest treatment from enemies, friends, and even family. This psalm is both David's expression of repentance and his cry for help in dire times. And we get a picture here of how we can hold those two things together. Those who mistreated him were beyond wrong. And as we consider the background, we'll, we'll see a clearer picture of that. And, and they were acting wickedly. And David's reaction helps us think through how we should view similar situations. And I pray that not all of you will face such personally dire situations, conflicts. And despite that prayer, I still hope that this would be useful, even if it's just for you as you help other people you know as they endure trial. So I think that there is potential application here regardless of whether we have to go through something like this or not. And so the main point, the main point is that repentance, repentance does not mean, does not mean that we cannot seek help in suffering. Repentance does not mean that we cannot seek help in suffering. I suppose we could put it alternatively the positive way, right? Repentance can mean that we can still seek help in times of suffering. Repentance includes that we can seek help still in times of suffering. Uh, Our three points today are the situation, the struggling, and the search. So let's start with the situation. So uh, most psalms, a lot of them, if not most of them, we don't know kind of the, the exact background. We can, we can have approximate guesses, but, but usually it's that. Uh, unlike most psalms, we, we do have some indications of why David wrote Psalm 143. Uh, namely, a very long tradition, including the headings uh, among the psalms in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, and that are telling us that this psalm grows out of a particular time in David's life, 
One of the famous events in David's life was his adultery with Bathsheba, which led him then to murder her husband. And in 2 Samuel 12, God sent Nathan to show David his sin. And in verses 10 to 12, promised, there, God promised earthly curses of, upon David's life and family because of what he had done, saying, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now 2 Samuel 15-18 then unfolds how David's son Absalom turned against his father and wreaked havoc on David's household as fulfillment of that very curse. And in that situation, as Absalom turned against him, David fled Jerusalem and went on the run from his own son. And Psalm 143 is traditionally thought to be David's reflection about that time when he was on the run. So fitting between 2 Samuel 15 to 18. And there are then important aspects of this text that guide our thinking about repentance, specifically as it fits within the nexus of these complicated situations with sin really on all sides. And so David wrote in verses 1 and 2, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me, in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. I mean, this psalm has long been categorized as a psalm of repentance. And in David's opening line, he cried for mercy, followed with acknowledgments that he is not righteous before God in himself. He did not want God to assess him on his works because he was sinful. And he knew the the long-standing background that had brought him to this moment. And as David wrote the psalm because of his experience running from his murderous son, he acknowledged how his sin was at least involved in, but specifically the long-term cause of this hardship that he experienced. 
And in verses 1 and 2, we see that David repented of that. The thing is, just because David's sin was a contributing factor to this hardship, didn't change that he was in an evil situation. Those those two things, in fact, hold together. Verses 3 and 4, For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. And so we start to see that even if, even if you have some blame in your suffering, which is not always the case, but sometimes is, that doesn't change the fact that evil things are happening to you. And that evil people, or at least people behaving wickedly, are doing them. If we have, and so, I mean, we're holding two things together. We may have reason to repent, and we may need help in the same situation. And if we have reason to repent, that doesn't undermine that true evil has befallen us. And, and the thing is, I think especially today, we, we hate that complexity that both sides can have need to turn away from, from what they've done. That even as we can say, you shouldn't be doing this to me, we can still acknowledge, yes, I've done things wrong and repent of it. We like the idea of parsing situations down to their finest grain so that we can uh, pinpoint the determining factor to say, well, you are just that much more wrong than me, so I don't need to say anything. This is on you. And the truth of the matter is, the scripture doesn't give us that leeway. Both can be true. Both sides can need to repent. You can need help. And should call out to God for that help. And he will hear his people. And that doesn't mean that we don't have reasons to repent. In the midst of that situation. And so for David. The situation was that evil had come upon him. And he was still searching his heart. In the, in the matter. Evil had come upon David. And he was still searching his heart. In the matter. That brings us to our second point the struggling. The struggling. So, given the complexities of of the situation behind this psalm, David's situation obviously required some self searching and and personal wrestling. He, He knew the background that was the long-term cause of why he was going through this, and yet he also knew that Absalom was doing evil things. Even though David's sin was the, the wider, broad, in, a, in a broader sense, responsible for his, for his own hardships, still, David didn't do anything directly to Absalom to deserve this sort of treatment from him. At this point, 
Even, even though David had sinned in the past, Absalom didn't have any personal grounds for how he was treating his father. And, and David had long since repented of those sins and had endeavored to live faithfully. Verses 5 and, and 6, right? I remember the days of old. He's thinking about things that happened before. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. So despite David's prior repentance and new obedience, Absalom acted wrongly and evilly. And Absalom needed to take responsibility for that. And just because David had past sins, did not require him to endure evil passively and silently. I think one of the things that you know, may come up right there, if I, if I were to think about someone raising an objection, the scripture says, turn the other cheek. Yes, it does. Uh, that is true. And one of the things that I think wisely assessing what that enjoins upon us is, is to realize that a response is not the same thing as a retaliation. We can respond when we endure evil, even if we don't have the remit to retaliate. And so the, this context for this psalm helps explain that for David, when his murderous son sought his life, well, David fled. He responded, even though he didn't retaliate. And the scripture doesn't seem to condemn how, or, or you know, comment negatively how David moved himself to safety. Right? Verses 7 to 10. Here, Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me. From my enemies, O Lord, I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And so, we see that David rightly took himself to safety, and he also cried for God's rescue. And yet, even as as David cried for help against his tormentors, we know from the rest of Scripture that he ordered his army not to kill, but to, quote, deal gently with Absalom. 2 Samuel 18.5 And even though he was out to murder David, when Absalom 
was killed, David grieved immensely. And so, even as we go through hardship, mistreatment, endure trials of this sort where people are against us, even as we go through those situations, we ought to hope, even if it seems unlikely, even if we don't know how to get there, even if there aren't practical steps to take, we ought to hope for renewal and reconciliation. We have to hope for it. Removing ourselves from evil and crying for God to act against our aggressors does not mean does not mean that we shouldn't hope for restoration when the context of those evils is our relationships with those uh, with whom we cannot or should not easily break ties, like our family, like between this father and son. Even though David knew his opponents, his family, even though he knew that they acted wickedly toward him and knew that he needed to remove himself from that situation and and needed to seek God's help against his enemies, he also knew, he also knew that he was not totally beyond falling into sin himself. And so, his, his response to that knowledge was to call for God's help in making sanctified decisions. Verses 7 to 10. David asked, Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift my soul. Make me know the way that I should go. Because I'm giving my soul to you. And and then teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Despite how David was, was enduring heinous sin, he did not assume that everything he did would just automatically be correct. He did not take the affliction that he was enduring as free license to do whatever he wanted. And man, how easy is that mindset to adopt? They've wronged me. That that takes the, the seatbelt off, right? There's no more stop signs. All the stop gaps are gone because I've been wrong. That means I can respond in kind. It's so easy to adopt that sort of mindset. And what David did not do was take sin against him as license for free reign to respond however he wanted. He did not think that His suffering through the rampant sin of others' hands meant that he was excused from anything he had done or might do. David knew that he needed God to to guide him to walk in accordance with God's law. Now, despite how... We, we usually talk, when we're talking about prayer requests and that sort of thing, we, 
we usually talk about discerning God's will as if it means certain knowledge of God's decree for concrete aspects of our lives. God, show me your will about what job I should take. Show me your will about whom I should marry, where I should go to school. We want to discern God's will about these concrete, particular things about me. And despite how that's our impulse, well, the Bible here, especially, is speaking of seeking God's will as needing instruction and help in the very things that God has already revealed. God said what his law is already. He He engraved it on our hearts in creation. And then he revealed it again, his moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments and re-explained his moral law in the New Covenant Scriptures. So he's told us what his will is, and that's the exact will that David is seeking help to discern. As as good as it is to, to want divine assistance in the particulars of our own life, we should certainly pray for them. Absolutely, and pray for guidance. As much as, as we want assistance in that, the, the Bible is infinitely more emphatic about our need for help simply in learning and keeping the foundational principles of God's law that aren't secret, but have been plainly made known to us. So the struggling... Struggling is our need to respond rightly and well to wrong done to us in a practical way while also seeking God concerning our spiritual response. I mean, David knew he was in troubled times. We need even more help to know and to keep God's law. And we struggle to respond well. We struggle to respond rightly particularly when wrong is done to us. And so we should seek the Lord. And that brings us to our final point, the search. Search. So what we've done is explored David's wrestling with his affliction to see how he wrestled with his own sin even amidst the turmoil caused by others. And having done that, we have to connect the dots more explicitly to how we should apply David's posture to our own lives. In times when we are in turmoil and in trouble, even when it results to some degree or other from our own sin as as David's situation was the long-term result of his adultery, even, even in that situation, we have to admit our faults and acknowledge that we need God's guidance. We, we can grow overconfident that we know what is right. 
That is very, very easy for us to do. My first impulse has to be right. And that leads us to trust our initial gut feelings about if we are right or wrong in a given situation. And I think we should question it more. David knew that he needed God's instruction, which wasn't reinforce my gut instincts. He needed God to lead him in holiness through the things he, he already knew God had revealed as the principles for life. But he needed help to live that out in these circumstances because he knew he could not intuit the exactly right thing to do without God's help. David knew his sin and so he distrusted his heart. We have to search ourselves and, and at least allow for the possibility. And I think that that is an important way to put this because we can, we can go the other direction too and, and never assess what's going on in our hearts. And so, so the baseline here is allow, we, we search ourselves and allow for the possibility That we need correction at some level or in some respect. We should pursue deeper repentance. Assuming that it is possible that we have deceived ourselves in some way. And that becomes very difficult and complex when we face real world wickedness. I mean, the absolute bottom line is that even when we recognize someone else's even serious transgression against us, even when we do that, we are still always responsible to deal with God for our own hearts and actions. We can realize that wrong has been done to us, and we don't have to write that off. And we still have to reckon with God for ourselves. Our sin is sin. Even if it's in the context of someone else's sin. Uh, I remember a tragic, really tragic story. About friends of a friend. Uh, They were married. She repeatedly committed adultery. And he was abusive. Now it's easy for both of them to blame the other for their sin. But that's an easy thing to do. She could say she was unfaithful because he was immensely and sinfully cruel. And it makes sense to some degree because that's true. He was immensely and sinfully cruel. He could say that he was cruel because she was unfaithful. And her, despite his sin, her unfaithfulness is still sin. Both have seriously been wronged. And both have, have committed inexcusable, which is not the same thing as unforgivable. Both have committed inexcusable sin for which they need to repent. 
Action is needed in some measure to correct and rebuke both parties. And yet both should bring themselves in outrage against themselves before God for what they've done. What they've done to someone else whom they promised God to love. But what about when the sides are not equally or, or even sort of approximately heinous, depending on how you measure that. I once saw an interview where, I mean, it was, it was a sort of supposed ministry organization, which sort of tells you how I feel about it. Uh, I once saw an interview where they, they had a, a man confess that he was that he was addicted to illicit illicit online material. I trust you know what I mean. And this supposed ministry interviewing him then had his wife confess that she sinned because she spent too much time with her friends, suggesting that they were in equal. Equally sinful struggles here. I don't know them. Maybe could I suppose could be. But on the surface, just hearing those details, I'm not really willing to categorize those things equally. This this man subjected his wife to unfaithfulness through his computer use, and he should confess and repent his heinous crime. And he ought to repent for gaslighting his wife by trying to nullify his sin because there were some seemingly minor improvements she could make in attentiveness. Unfaithfulness and attentiveness are two different things and of two different degrees of seriousness. Westminster Shorter Catechism 83 says that some sins are more heinous than others. And we should 